Amen. All right, you have your Bible in hand. We're going to be in two places this morning. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles 20. That's Old Testament. So get there, but put something there. Um, 2 Chronicles 20, you can find that. But where we're at chronologically as a church is we're in Matthew 5. So I want you guys to go ahead and turn there as well. For those of you guys who are visiting, we have been going through the uh, Gospels chronologically, the stories in the life of Jesus as they would have occurred chronologically. And so we are here at Matthew 5. Um, but it's going to tie into Second Chronicles 20. And if you have been sticking with the Bible in a Year reading plan that we do every year, we were in Second Chronicles this week. And I was in there and studying it, knowing and anticipating that I was going to be teaching from Matthew 5. And then this story in Second Chronicles came up. And I was like, this is it. The Lord just threaded those two things together. And I love the way he does that. The way that he just confirms his word all the time. So the sermon title is this, Taught by God. And the sermon in a sentence, because Tony loves those, okay, is your position in battle can become God's place of blessing, Write that down. I mean, the whole morning has been about that, right? Just about this battle that we find ourselves in. And this is just real life, isn't it? Like, it's just real life. We can know seasons and times of peace. But as a whole, going to Walmart's a battle, you know? And so I just think this is so relevant for where we're at in, in any season of life, no matter where you're at, learning, being taught by God being taught by the Lord that your position in battle can become God's place of blessing. So in Matthew 5, that's where we're at, starting at verse 1, it says, One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. And right here, the rest, maybe you have a Bible that has the red letters that it's just filling pages and pages. This is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where the Beatitudes are found. And in the Greek, that just means the supreme blessings, teaching on the supreme blessings. But it says that Jesus went up a mountain. And I loved Spurgeon's thoughts on this, on this picture. If you're visualizing this, there's crowds around and Jesus goes up on a mountain. And this is what Spurgeon said, a crypt or a cavern would have been out of all character for a message which is to be published upon the housetops and preached to every creature under heaven. This was meant to be going forth. This wasn't to be hidden in a cave or a crypt or in a tiny secret place. This was to be carried across the mountaintops to all mankind. And really, it sheds light, new light, and a new perspective on Isaiah 52.7 that might be familiar to some of you guys. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Under the divine inspiration and influence of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah writes these words, a whole book, beautiful book of prophecy. And I like to think, because it's completely plausible, that as he's writing these words under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that he was given a picture, maybe even a vision of this very scene in Matthew 5 of Jesus on that mountain. How beautiful are the mountains whose feet bring the good news. He might have caught a glimpse of Messiah, of Jesus. God saves. And he says, that's what will be proclaimed. 
the proclamation of salvation, your God reigns. Did you know that Jesus came to teach? He came to preach. This was his purpose. In fact, in Luke 4, 43, it says, he's talking to his disciples. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities. It's for I was sent for this purpose. Yes, he was sent for the cross, right? And aren't we grateful? He was sent for the redemption, the salvation of man. But while he was on earth, he came to preach and to teach. This was his purpose, and he knew it well. In fact, just a few verses earlier, in Matthew 4, 23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, And then he's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Those were authenticating the message that he came to give. He came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So this mountain, this became another opportunity. This was another stage, another platform, if you will, for him to address the multitudes that continued to follow him all the time, no no matter where he went. They followed him, but he doesn't stand on that mountain like some great orator or some famous keynote speaker. He's not some Shakespearean actor up there. He sits. He comes to this place, and he sits down, but that was the custom of the time for all of the teachers and all of the rabbis. I just want you guys to imagine me or Tony pulling up a lazy boy on the stage and being like, all right, gather around, kids. I'm going to teach from my seat. It's different in our culture, but there it was unique. There was just something about that position. But it says that his disciples came to him, and they modeled and led by example to the crowd around them. They came and sat around Jesus as if to say, give this man your undivided attention. He's worthy to listen to. He's worthy to learn from. Come and sit with us. Come and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. And that should be our posture as well. Amen. Is that your posture? Is that the posture of your heart? Is that the posture of your life? Like, I want to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to assume the answer is yes because you're sitting in the house. You're like, that's why we're here, Melissa. We want to come and learn. We want to come and learn what God has to say to us. But I have another question. Are you modeling that? Are you modeling that in your home and in your workplace, in any environment, any place of influence? You're like, I learned from Jesus. I'm taught by God. I'm taught by God. And this is what the disciples were modeling. You know, last week, Pastor Tony talked about Sabbath and entering into this gift and the blessing of God's rest. Well, where do we learn that from? How do, how do we learn this? He, he referenced Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. This might be familiar to some of you guys. Come to me, this is Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You might want to underline that. Remember that. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, listen to the way he describes himself, that he is gentle and humble. What a teacher to learn from, right? Like what a safe space to come and learn from Jesus. He says, I'm gentle and hum- humble. And he says, come and take upon the yoke of my learning and what that means. 
walk with me, which is really what a yoke was doing, was causing two animals to walk together. He's saying, yoke with me. Come in under my teaching because my burden isn't heavy. It's light. Come and learn. Other translations right here in Matthew 5 really emphasize a phrase that Jesus opened his mouth. It's implied in the statement that Jesus began to teach. But in some of the older translations, they'll say Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach. And I like the visual of that because it's like he is making this declaration. And it really is, guys, the Sermon on the Mount is the declaration of the kingdom. Because we are here in the United States and we have no, something known as the Declaration of Independence. Other nations have declarations. They have manifestos of who they are. This is Jesus' declaration of the kingdom of God. Remember, that's what he said, I came to preach, to proclaim the kingdom. This is his declaration. This really is essentially Jesus' life message. It's like his stock sermon. They invite Jesus to preach. This is what he's going to preach, right? And sermon, uh, scholars believe that this wasn't just preached right here, that it was preached everywhere, wherever he went. And it kept getting repeated. I mean, it was probably preached on multiple mountaintops, but it was probably also preached in boats and in homes and walking along the way because this was his message. This was the kingdom message. This was how to live life. I hope that you spend time this week reading about how we live, to live the life. Because isn't that our prophetic word this year? Live the life. Isn't that what we're doing? Learning to live the life. And Jesus came to show us how, man. We're not left without knowing and how to learn it. He came to show us how. But I want you guys to know that teaching and learning didn't start with Jesus. God's been doing it for a long time, right? He's been teaching. He's been instructing. This is what he does. God teaches. King David knew this. Listen to Psalm 32, 8. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Speaking of the Lord, he said, the Lord saying, I will instruct you. I will teach you. And David leaned into that, into, the, into God teaching him. The prophet Isaiah knew this, Isaiah 2, 3. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We got to learn it, don't we? We have to learn this. This isn't something that's just, you know, hardwired into us. These are things that we have to learn, just like parenting our kids. I remember when I had to teach them, this is how you unload the dishwasher, right? And you have to kind of keep reteaching that, actually, even as they get older. This is how you do it. And he said, this is, this is why he came. And, Lord, we want you to teach us concerning your ways. How many of you guys know you never stop being a student? You never stop learning. You're always a disciple. You're always following. You, you should always be coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning because we've got plenty to know. No one's an expert. Nobody's arrived. You're like, well, I've stopped learning. We are continually learning. And this is what we want Soma to know, to be convinced, to be taught by God. And I pray that this scripture right here, Psalms 8611, I pray that this resonates, that this becomes a pulse, a heartbeat inside of you. In fact, I want to challenge you guys that this would become a scripture memory for you, that you would memorize this over the next weeks. I know scripture memory gets harder the older you get. I get it. 
But Psalms 86.11 says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. There's all kinds of quote-unquote truths out there. But we want to be taught and live according to his truth. Amen? That's what we want. And we haven't been left without the resource to be able to do that. The Holy Spirit came. Look, John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. Did you know that's a function? That's a role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to teach you. And you know what? He's equipped for all learning styles and all disabilities. He knows. He knows how to get it in there. We, have, we are without excuse. He's like, oh, I got an answer for that. I know exactly how to teach you. I know exactly how to get that truth. And then it also says, and to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Thank God for that because I don't know about you guys, but I just am not remembering like I used to. So thank God for the Holy Spirit who not just teaches us, he brings back remembrance the things that he's taught us. So let's go to Second Chronicles 20. And I want us to just dig in because we're going to be taught by God that your position in battle can become God's place of blessing. I'm going to give you eight ways that your battle can become his blessing. And here we are, 2 Chronicles 20. I'm dropping you guys smack dab in the middle of a whole lot of history, okay, a timeline. And I want to geek out so bad and give you so much history right now but I'm not going to do it. But let's just say this. Let's say this. This is King Jehoshaphat, and he's in the line of kings of David. And this is in the time of the divided kingdom, and he is a king of Judah in Jerusalem in the line of David. But there's also another kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, where there's not so good kings, okay? Israel really struggled. They struggled having good kings. In fact, a contemporary king of Jehoshaphat at this time is King Ahab. Anybody heard of him? Not so good. And his wicked, vile, detestable queen wife, Jezebel. Okay? This is the same time period. Jehoshaphat is king in Judah. And then you got the uh, wicked cousins somewhere else. And that's also there in the time of Elijah. So here we are in Jehoshaphat because he has done things well. He's pleased the Lord. He's done things that have pleased the Lord. He's known a lot of peace, a lot of prosperity. He's known as a good king. And this is King Jehoshaphat. Things have been going fairly well. In verse 1, it says that the armies of the Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Meunites had declared war on Jehoshaphat. And messengers came and told him that a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. So they're close. They're right out there in the En This is like sweating it close. This is like, uh uh-oh, there's an army gathered in White House. Okay? And they're coming for you. And it's like, that's close. They're getting here. And this is the first way that battle can become your blessing. Look at what Jehoshaphat did. It says in verse 3, Jehoshaphat was terrified by the news, and he begged the Lord for guidance. Number one, seek God first. I know this sounds like a duh statement. I know that you're like, well, duh, we're Christians. We should seek God first. But we tend to look to anyone and everything before we look to him. We will Google that. We get, we get news, we get, we get bad news, and we will be Googling before we ever think to pray. Right? Am I right? Come on. 
especially when we're scared. We'll, we'll go to someone, we'll call friends, and we'll rally. And there's nothing wrong with that, with our community and our friends and our family supporting us in situations. But are we seeking God first? Jehoshaphat did right away. He got terrifying news. He went straight to God. That's what our response has to be in the battle every time. You want your position in battle to become a place of blessing? You seek the Lord first. Listen, 1 Chronicles 16, 11. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Psalms 105, 3 and 4. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. You get you getting the theme here? Continually, always, all the time, without exception, you guys. And I loved Proverbs 8. I wanted to include, include this, verse 17. The Lord says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. That's a promise of the Lord, that when you seek him... Well, it says in scripture, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, then everything else gets added to you. Seek first his kingdom. And it goes on to say, after he sought the Lord for guidance, look there in verse three, he also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. This is number two in your your uh, position of battle becoming God's place of blessing, fast and pray. Fast and pray. Now, I know right there you're like, mm-hmm, next. This is like whenever a doctor tells you eat right and exercise, right? And you're like, yeah, 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 but, but what else can I do? No, what else should I do? Fast and pray. No, tell me something else, right? We tend to do that. You're like, a whole lot could be fixed with eating right and exercising. A whole lot could be fixed by fasting and praying. It's, it's pretty simple. I don't know why we overcomplicate it, but we do. It might be because fasting and praying can be hard, right? But both the Old Testament and the New Testament are teaching us the value of fasting. It hasn't gone away. That didn't die out. Fasting and praying. It's still part of the Christian walk. It's part of our discipline. I mean, simply abstaining from food and drink and maybe other pleasures in order to focus on prayer and seeking the Lord's will. As I was praying and studying on fasting and praying, I came across a quote from a guy. I don't even know who he is. You might, but I liked his quote. This is what he said. I just love the way he described it. Fasting in the biblical sense is choosing not to partake of food because your spiritual hunger is so deep. Your determination and intercession is so intense or your spiritual warfare is so demanding that you have temporarily set aside even fleshly needs to give yourself to prayer and meditation. It's like hunger and thirst doesn't matter in comparison to the fact that I need to seek God and know direction for his, for my life. It's that important to me that I will abstain from this to hear from him. That's what fasting and praying does. Joel wrote about this in 2, 12, 13. He said, even now, declares the Lord, even now. That's a good way of saying, it's not too late. Even if you haven't done it yet, even now. You're in the heat of battle and you're like, oh, I didn't seek the Lord. Oops, I haven't fasted to pray. Well, Joe has made provision for you. He said, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Seek first. 
with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Jehoshaphat knew this. This was a part of his heritage in the line of kings that he had been a part of. He knew this. I need to seek the Lord and fast and pray. And he wasn't going to be alone on this because this was affecting his whole kingdom. Everybody, everybody's going to fast and pray because there's private and there's public. There's this corporate sense. There's this individual sense. Fast and pray. And look at what, look in verse five. Then Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. And he prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. Oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and they built this temple to honor your name. And they said, he's like, And they told us, they told us that whenever we are faced with any calamity, such as war, like right now, plague or famine, we can come to stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us and you will hear us and rescue us. Here's number three in your position of battle becoming God's place of blessing. Make a declaration. Make your declaration. Do you see what Jehoshaphat was doing here? He was declaring the truth of God with his mouth, out loud for all to hear. And I'm not talking about a name it, claim it, kind of this laws of attraction, positive confessions, mumbo jumbo that's going on right now that says that if you confess it and declare something that over your life, it's going to happen like you can somehow manifest it, like you got something to say about that. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how like Jehoshaphat and so many other examples in the biblical narrative, we are making biblical declarations that speak forth God's truth. What God has said, what God has spoken, truth about who we are in him and who he is. Why is this important? Why is it so important for us to make declarations to the Lord? Because declaring God's word helps to align our hearts with his will. When we speak his word, his truth gets inside of us. And we begin to desire his will over our own. Do you know that our own salvation experience involves declaring? Romans 10.10, this is familiar, for if it is with your heart that you believe and you are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There is something powerful about a declaration, about speaking forth. I mean, I consider the moments in my life when I thought the battle is so intense. The grief, the suffering, the pain is so hard. And you can feel almost paralyzed by lies and doubt and fear. I mean, he was terrified. He was terrified. I'm about to lose my nation. I'm about to lose my people. And I think about those times, and I thought, I can either sit here and wallow in 
the lie and doubt and anxiety and fears, or I can declare the truth over my situation. I can declare what God has spoken. And it's so amazing because my mouth spoke and my heart followed and I began to walk in the confidence and the strength of the Lord. It's amazing. I teach my kids this phrase I've said many times that a right action can change a wrong feeling. And what's happened is that we have spent way more time declaring and talking about and fussing about the situation, the battle, the negativity. We've spent more time doing that than we have declaring the goodness and faithfulness and the promises of Lord over a situation. I've had many unauthorized conversations. The Lord said, I didn't authorize you talking negatively about this situation. But what he has authorized us to do is to proclaim who he is. To speak more about the victory and less about my wallowing and how it's affecting me. More about what he has promised and less about all of my worst case scenarios and what if, what if situations. Like what if, what if, what if. The Lord's like, I want you to declare. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. He just said right back to, him, to the Lord what the Lord had promised them. God isn't the one who needed to hear it. Jehoshaphat did. And the people did. We need to make those declarations over our lives. Verse 12, skipping on down a little bit because he's made some more. He said some more. And then he says this in verse 12. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? Anybody prayed that? <laughs> Could you make it stop? <laughs> won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. He knew what was true. He knew they were powerless wasn't wrong for him to admit that, but he knew the truth too. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. And says, as the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. Do you guys have that picture in your mind? When I read the scriptures, I like to turn it into a movie. They're standing there before the Lord. They're waiting on the Lord. And it says in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah. He was a guy. He was a Levite. He's just standing there, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And this is number four. In your position of battle becoming God's place of blessing, wait on the Lord. You've sought God. You're fasting and praying. You've made your declaration. Now wait. Wait, listen to what the Lord has to say. Wait, don't rush in. Wait, this might be one of the hardest things to do when the battle's amping up, isn't it? To wait, you're standing there, you're like, okay. It is such an act of trust. But we wait on the Lord for him to act. We wait on the Lord for him to deliver, to answer our prayers, to renew our strength, to give us our marching orders, to give us our instructions. We're waiting on the Lord because we want to hear from him and his wisdom. We want to wait on him to do what only God can do. Amen. We don't want to take this in our own strength. We want to try to figure this out in our carnal minds. We want God to do this. We want God to show up. And we wait on him because he's God and we're not. He's our commander and we follow him. And when we wait on the Lord, there is a beautiful, holy transaction that happens. He changes us and he strengthens us. This is the biblical promise. 
I could have spent the rest of our time rattling off scriptures about waiting on the Lord and what it does for us. That when we wait, he gives us something. When we wait, there is an exchange. There is a change that happens. There's a transaction. Listen to Psalms 37, seven, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Don't do it. Psalms 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Just in those two passages, have you seen what the Lord does when we wait upon him? I'm just failing. My week is failing. My strength is failing. I feel so weak. Wait on the Lord. Seek him. Fast and pray. Make your declaration and wait on the Lord. Because he will. And I want you to notice that these aren't suggestions. Like maybe you should wait on the Lord. I mean, it might work. They're not suggestions, you guys. These are commands to wait on the Lord. And I know that may not fit, fit, feel right. That might fit funny on you. We don't necessarily like being told what to do sometimes, right? We're Americans. But this is a command of the Lord to wait, to seek him, to wait and listen. Look at verse 15. Listen to what he says. Jehaziel. He's just minding his own business, waiting on the Lord, and the Spirit came upon him. He just started <laughs> prophesying over the people. I got to laughing thinking about him being the, the campus introvert that never spoke, and then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he starts declaring. And the people were like, Jehaziel's talking. What? Where'd this come from? But listen to what he said. Listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. Listen. Listen. This is number five. Listen to his counsel. The Lord said it twice there through this guy. Listen, listen, you've waited to hear from me. Now listen, listen to the counsel. We'll get to his counsel in just a second. Tony and I have known so many people over the years. Call us up. They're in crisis. There's a situation. We need help. We need advice. We need to be told what to do. We don't know what to do. We've done all we can do. We're at the the end of our rope. And they come to us and they sit in our office and we meet with them and we pray with them and we seek the Lord for for them and, and then send them out with a plan and they don't listen. Do whatever they wanted to do. Well, why'd you come and ask us if you weren't gonna heed the advice? Are you going to seek God, fast and pray, make your declaration, wait on the Lord to speak? He tells you and you don't listen? You don't heed the counsel? The Lord's told you what to do. He's spoken. He's shown you. He's shown you through his written word. He's maybe shown you through people who love you and who have advised you and given you godly counsel. He's shown you what to do, and we have to heed his word, heed the trusted counsel in our life. There's a biblical precedent for this. Proverbs 19.20, get all the advice and instruction you can. Get all of it. It doesn't say hoard it. It doesn't say limit it. Just get all that you can. Get it all. Get it all. Get it all. All that you can. You can be greedy for advice and instruction if you want to. So you will be wise the rest of your life. Tony and I, We will hardly make a decision without seeking advice and counsel. We are like, 
We want the Lord to lead us in every decision of our lives. Somebody has an ounce more experience in a situation than I do, I'm asking them about it. How did you do it? What did you do? I want counsel. I want advice. Because I want to be wise the rest of my life. I'm not an expert in anything. I want to seek the counsel and seek advice. Proverbs 11:14 14 says, where there is no guidance, the people fall. When, when you don't have guidance and counsel in your life and people holding you accountable and holding you up and helping you walk through that, you're going to fall. But look at the promise on the other side. But in abundance of counselor, there is victory. How many of you guys need victory in your life? I was assuming everyone, but maybe just you, Tristan. We need victory in our lives. Well, it says in the abundance of counsel, there is victory. Isn't that so good? So let's listen to what he tells them to do. This is Lord. He says, listen, listen. Introvert Jehaziel has something to say. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. We're in verse 15. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. I'm assuming they all went, oh, yeah, I know this spot. But I want you right there at Jeruel, I want you to underline that or circle it. We're going to come back to this wilderness of Jeruel. And he says, but you will not even need to fight. Take your positions and stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow for the Lord is with you. This is number six. Take your position. You got to take your position. He wants to mobilize us. He wants to partner with us. We have a part to play in the battle. And it means taking our position. And I wish it meant that we could take up arms and, you know, maybe, you know, right hook, roundhouse, kick to the face. But it doesn't. These are spiritual battles. There's spiritual implications for this. So taking a position in our life is less about physically like what we're doing and where we're going to go and more spiritual it's our position and who we are being. It's all about taking our positions as his sons and his daughters. And that's knowing who we are in Christ. And it makes all the difference in the world for us to take that position as a son and a daughter. And that he's our commander and he is our king. And the victory and the battle is his. And we stand in that position as his sons and daughters. People only act, and I want you to hear this, People only act in accordance with what they believe about themselves and about God. If you think about it, it can all get narrowed down. Your actions, the positions you're going to take in your life, will be in accordance to what you believe about yourself and what you believe God, about God. And when you know who you are and whose you are, Christ's identity, being rooted in his identity, those are the actions that you'll begin to take. Those are the, the directions that you'll begin to go because your identity gets rooted in God and it gives you this healthy sense of acceptance and a healthy sense of affection and approval. And that becomes your position, not a victim, not of a victim over here, but of a victor. You take your position, you get, but you got to show up. He said, you got to show up, take your position. He could have easily just fought the battle out there for them and then word get to them, oh, y'all won. 
Now, he wanted them to be there. See, take the position, and nothing empowers confidence to take our positions in battle like knowing who holds the victory for us. Man, it's so powerful to know that. I'm skipping a couple of slides. I'm going to get to verse 18. So listen to this. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground, and all of the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and on the way, Jehoshaphat stopped. So they worshiped all night. They got up the next morning to take their positions, but Jehoshaphat had to stop because I'm guessing based on the next scripture, he started hearing murmuring and complaining on the way. Like, what are we thinking? You know how like the night before it's a good idea and you get all pumped up and the next day you go to do it and you're like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have. They're walking out. And Jehoshaphat stops. He's right among them. And he said, listen to me. Listen, this is in verse 20. He said, listen to me, all you people of Jude and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. He had to remind them of who they were. He had to remind them of their true position as the sons and daughters, as victors. And he had to silence the complaining, right? He had to silence the murmuring. And it says in verse 21, after consulting the people, because this was his MO, he's going to get advice. He's going to get counsel. The king appoints singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor, right? He's like, are we going to send the singers out first? Everybody starts singing. Let's sing a song. It's like when you're on a road trip and your kids start fussing and you just put on veggie tales and then they'll all sing along. It'll silence the fussing. Silence the complaining. He's like, send the singers out. Let's get everybody singing. Let's worship the Lord. And they said, give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. This is number seven. And your, your position in battle becoming God's place of blessing. Worship on the way. Worship on the way. We don't just worship on the other side of the victory, right? Like sitting back like, God, I, I won't worship you until you come through. No, you worship along the way. You stand upon the promise of the Lord before the battle starts. We saw a picture of this in Jericho, didn't we? Before the walls fell. That we worship along the way. Worship God, declaring who he is. And I want to spend just a minute on what worship really is. The late Timothy Keller said this, Worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. That is what worship is, seeing God. And worship immediately takes the focus off of our anxiety and off our fears and our concerns. And it centers our hearts. It gets us in the right perspective, in the right posture in our hearts. And it puts our minds on God and who he is and his promises for us. And that's so good to remember that. When you're in the heat of battle, worship. Worship. It is truly one of your greatest weapons of warfare is to worship the Lord. I mean, we were singing about it this morning, right? This is how we fight our battles. This is how we do it. We worship the Lord. Incredible, incredible tool to center our hearts on him. Look at verse 25 or 22. It says, 
At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. And after they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. They're eating their own at this point. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, remember God told them a specific place to go, take their position. When they got there, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. What a picture, right? That is gruesome. As far as they could see, and not a single one of the enemy had escaped. And right here, guys, this was the pivotal point right here when the battle became the blessing. And they showed right up, and they were like, oh, look at that. We truly didn't have to fight. You can imagine the collective relief of the crowd, right? Like, oh, thank God. Really didn't want to die today. This was this is a moment right here. They worshiped along the way. As they went, the battle was being won for them. Verse 25, it says, King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. That's eight. That's how your position of battle becomes his place of blessing. Just gather the plunder, you guys. He's done the work. He's done the work for us. Walk in the blessings. Walk in the blessed life, Right? It, said, it goes on to say that they found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. And on the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day. Because the people praised and thanked the Lord there, it is still called the Valley of Blessing. What used to be called the Wilderness of Jeruel, and remember I told you guys to circle that, now is called the Valley of Blessing. And it's called that to this day. And I want you to know what Jeruel means. What the wilderness of Jeruel means. Jeruel means taught by God. So they went from the wilderness of Jeruel. And they were taught by God. And came to the valley of blessing. Isn't that so good? That's what we have been called to live in. That's what Jesus was preaching back there on that mountain. Back on that mountain when he is preaching the kingdom of God, this radical message of his blessings, to walk in the blessing. Blessed are, blessed are those. Happy and prosperous are those. We can come and sit at his feet and learn how to walk in the blessedness, in the supreme blessings. I don't know if you guys knew this, but the Malachi 4, it's the very last written book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It's four chapters. The very last word of Malachi 4, the last word of the Old Testament is curse. And it means someone or something captured for dedication or destruction, just like as in a net. And that's what a curse is, and it's what it does. It captures in order to destroy. But how many of you guys know we do not have to live under the curse? We're under the law of grace. We're under the law of blessing. That is what we get to walk in. We learned that through Joshua. When he's leading the children of Israel into the promised land, we learn that we are given a choice. 
blessing or curses. I want you guys to read this in Deuteronomy 30, 19. This is the message version where you're closing. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I place before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your children will live and love God, your God, listening obediently to him, firmly embracing him. Oh, yes, he is life itself, a long life, settled on the soil that God, your God, promised to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is life. He is the blessed life, you guys. He's the supreme blessing. And we can be taught by God daily, moment by moment in our lives, to walk in that blessing, to choose that blessing. We don't have to live under the curse. Aren't you grateful for that? That we get to live under the blessings of Christ.